Welcome to another episode of Rad Talk with Tracy. I'm your host, Tracy Poffenroth Prado. This podcast is all about reactive attachment disorder, or RAD. I'm going to be talking with parents who will be sharing their experiences of what it's like raising a child with RAD. It gets raw and it gets real. I'm also going to be talking with experts from different areas who will be sharing information about RAD, resources, and support. I'm glad you're here. Let's get started. Today, I'm talking with Cheryl Russo, and we're going to be talking about a really, really tough and vulnerable topic, uh, raising a child with reactive attachment disorder and relinquishing that child back to the state. Cheryl Russo is a registered nurse and a certified pediatric clinical specialist. She and her husband, Joe, have four biological children and two adopted children, one with RAD. Cheryl spent a number of years as a stay-at-home parent, full-time advocate for her children's needs, and to educate about reactive attachment disorder. And very recently, her and her husband had no choice but to relinquish their 10-year-old daughter with RAD back to the state. Cheryl, I want to welcome you to the show, and thank you so much for being so open and willing to share your story with us today. Hi, Tracy. Thanks for having me on. I'm wondering if you can share one thing that you would tell a RAD parent or an adoptive parent, uh, something that you wish you would have known, a piece of advice that you've gained through your experience, or just something helpful, some little nugget of wisdom. A little piece that's not so little at all is that when a child comes into your home, our experience was adopting through the foster care system. So we were able to spend some time with our children. But anybody ever tells you, adoption will not make things better. It does not solve the problem. Making the home safe in your version of safe does not make anything better. Only they know what that is. What makes you feel safe is going to be different than what makes me feel safe. So I could build a moat with alligators around my home, even if that's what I was asked to do by that child, because they say it's going to make them feel safe and it's not going to work. Talk a little bit about your story and what you thought or envisioned life would be like. You've got two adopted daughters. So what did you think adoption was going to be like for you and your your new family through adoption? Yeah, I have a background in understanding childhood development and and I certainly had some understanding in trauma. My background is in pediatrics, so I and I had to have a certification that was beyond that because I worked with all different sorts of families and um not just in in intense medical needs, but I was going into people's homes, working alongside DCF, things like that. But even through all of that, there wasn't a lot about attachment in my trainings. I did all of the things as a parent. You know, I nursed all my children. I held them. I carried them. I, they slept with me. I got yelled at by every person in my family for doing all of those things <laughs> right. that, you know, um, right. we weren't supposed to be doing. Um, because we were spoiling our kids. But I I think that I definitely knew and understood that it was going to take a lot of time, understanding, patience, caring, love, the big word, to, and therapy. Right. I knew therapy would be involved. There was no doubt. I already had people picked out. I had all of the people picked out I wanted in our community because I knew community, you know, the people that I had known for years. 
and worked with that I wanted to work with our kids. So I, I was ready, get ready to go. You were really ready to go. And with your background, yeah, it sounds like you went into it knowing a lot more, expecting a lot more than most parents do. I did. So what was your reason for adoption? Did you, you have four biological kiddos and then you adopted later. Is that right? We did. And it was not in our plans at all. It was, this was a really tragic family situation, actually. These are great nieces that we were, um, they were from a different state. They had already been in and out of care a number of times. It was becoming really difficult to continue to watch that, although we weren't close, physically close, so we didn't see the day-to-day events. We didn't know what was happening with them day-to-day, but by the last time, which was supposed to be an emergency placement and then short-term with intensive home services to return them, that wasn't what happened. Um, and the foster parents who are lovely people who only took short-term emergency placement ended up being 17 months. Wow. And they don't adopt. That's not, you know, their children are grown. This is just sort of what they always want to be there to have an emergency placement available for, for children. So they didn't expect 17 months. <laughs> oh, not at all. And so then at that point, we really felt like the only option these girls were going to have was to get them out of that state and move them far enough away from the center of trauma that they were living in. Every, Especially when they had been placed with biological family in the past, the bio parents knew where they always were and they always had access to them freely to be able to come and go. Um, It was really difficult on family to try to maintain those boundaries where we were far enough away that we didn't really feel like that would be as much of an issue. So we thought we were solving problem one, get them away. Right. We had the resources here. We had the knowledge here. So we thought we had the knowledge. Right. We, what we were lacking. And you did have the knowledge. But we did have, didn't. we had the knowledge about children. We had the knowledge about trauma to an extent. We had PTSD knowledge. We did not have the paper knowledge on the kids. And that was really difficult because that's where it went completely awry. And our decision probably would have significantly changed, not because we wouldn't have wanted to help the children, but because almost immediately we would have known we were not the right placement. Had we known some of the things that were happening in the prior foster home, would have told us that our home was not suited. Interesting. So when you talk about knowing the paper part of it, is that, do you mean the background information, their history, behaviors? Yeah, the things that were occurring already. There was already sibling violence going on, peer violence to other children going on. We had we had infants in our home all the time. We had toddlers in our home all the time. Our grandchildren, along with our son who was you know nine ten at the time was our center of our world at that point we had gotten to that point in our lives so those are things that were really really huge for for us to know with the knowledge that we had we thought we were really prepared our family up here was very supportive they all thought we were really they're like hey you guys got it you know you have you got what you need i had a preschool picked out already that i knew you know i had the teachers 
I literally went to the school, um, the elementary school, and picked out the, the kindergarten teachers I wanted because I that we had years of experience in all of these areas. But that's not enough. Right. And, you know, that's a great lead in, Cheryl, because I think the missing link is reactive attachment disorder. And so most people, including therapists, other professionals, have no clue or they've maybe heard of reactive attachment disorder, RAD, but they honestly don't understand it. They don't understand the behaviors of the kids. They don't understand the parents and what they experience. It's a really lonely place for a parent. From your perspective, how would you explain what RAD is to someone like that? For us, having the two of them come in was... And these are your two daughters. Two daughters, having our two youngest come home finally. Layla and Ella finally come home was so exciting because things were delayed over and over. So Joe was home. I remember the day like it was yesterday, actually. Um, Joe was home with our son in the pool. And, you know, we had our whole world set up for these guys. We had spent, I don't even want to know how much redoing this beautiful little girl's room. Everything was so excited. So we couldn't wait to get home and bring them in. And I, I have the video of them running down the hallway to see their room. And oh, wow. all of that, getting them changed and having them run out into the yard just to go to the pool. And I remember just being overwhelmed that it was finally over because it was such a mess. Thinking, we got this. It was finally it. There's a chance. My son's friends came over later that afternoon, same day. Now, they had these, these girls had been come our girls had been coming back and forth for transitions. So they were they knew these friends. But literally the first day that this was permanent, the same friend came over and I said, okay, we got to get, Ella hadn't gotten changed yet. So Ella had came out and she was in the nude, no clothes on and started rubbing her hands over her body and said, you know, don't you want some of this? Now I was a little surprised, but not terribly. We had no history, no idea of sexual abuse, but it was still in the back of my mind, of course. And I still thought trauma, PTSD, because that's a child from a home with sexual abuse. So I put my you know, ears up and thought, okay, we brought her back inside. And I said, you know, we can't do that. And she made a tiny disclosure. So I was like, okay, we'll take care of this. You know, I, I did the proper things, tr- proper channels and um, knew we had to put our antlers up. She kept being overly seductive though, like beyond what a typical child with sexual abuse would be. And it's very hard for me to dis- to explain what that looks like until you see it. The persistence is so intense that as time went on over the next few months, literally my son became like trying to avoid her. And there was no amount of explaining to her that this was not okay. And it wasn't, not, not, it wasn't something that she didn't understand, he didn't like. And then the reality hit because I 
her sister started having marks and bruises and bite marks that were in places that she certainly couldn't do to herself, Young, her younger sister, Layla. And these are girls I, I don't think we opened up with. When they came to us, they were four and five. So very young. So this was happening when, yeah, she was, Ella was five. Ella's the daughter right. with Rad. Okay. Right. Ella's, Ella's five. She's getting ready to turn six, five when she came to us. So she was probably close to six at this point. And I, we had a cat. Um, thankfully, we still have him. He's laying beside me, not happy right now because he got hurt. <laughs> got a fight with something. <laughs> He's okay right now. He, um, He's happy. He had gone into their bedroom with them. And as I said, I had started noticing bites and bruises, not cat bites, but human bites and bruises on Layla that were unexplained. Ella wouldn't fess up to it and Layla would not blame her. So I can't, at this point, it's still so early. I can't really say, I know you did this and then find out she hasn't done it. But at this point, Layla hasn't started preschool yet either. So I know my, there's no other child that's been doing it. My son certainly isn't doing it. He's, you know, it's such a, conundrum because you don't want to accuse a traumatized child of doing something that they haven't done but in your heart you're like this has to be what's happening the cat was kind of the final it we went I went around the corner and I followed I watched as the cat went in the room and Ella had gone into the room where Layla was and I kind of walked quietly down there and I heard a cat scream and I heard Layla say stop and I looked around the corner and nobody knew I was standing there, but Ella had Thomas, is our cat's name, I had Thomas in her lap and she was squeezing his paw really hard. And I said to her, I said, Ella, stop. You need to stop that. And she said, I'm not doing anything. Layla is. And this is the first time. Ella was probably six by now because it was, it was after um, she had just turned six. And this was the first time that Layla finally said she wasn't doing it herself, that Ella was doing it. She messed up and she would accept the abuse to herself. But if it came to an animal, that was off limits. She wasn't taking the blame for that. And so she said, I did not do that. You did that. You know, just this little like, and Ella looked at her and I, the eyes, the eyes, the eye, her eyes could tell it all. They got like wide and slanted at the same time. Like it's this hard. So it's like her pupils like dilate, but her eyes kind of like looked so it's a look that I know now very clearly. And she looked at her like if I wasn't there, she could have done something to her right then and there. And she squeezed his paw again and he's screaming and I'm saying, stop. And she says, I'm not doing it. She is. Why can't you see that? So I took him and then I got Layla out of the room and she's, I said, you cannot hurt the cat. And I'm still being totally quiet and calm because I can't, I'm trying to figure out how to rationalize with her. And then that's when she looked at me and she started using extremely vulgar language. I don't know how PG your show is, but it's right. Very PG. But she said, um, you know, she said, well, you know, I said, you're not going to be able to play with him. You're not going to be able to touch him. 
he's not going to want to be friends if you're not going to be kind to him. And that's when she said, I don't effing care. She goes, as long as Layla can't have him, I don't effing care what you do with him. And this is barely a six-year-old looking at me, like, with these eyes that I'm like, I really don't think she has any feeling. There's literally no feeling there. And what is going through your mind? Because at this point, do you even know what Rad is? Do you know? I mean, what what are you thinking? Yeah, I knew there was something more than PTSD. I knew of Rad. What I knew of Rad was that Rad was, in my mind, Rad was not something that five and six-year-olds did. Rad was those a little bit older kids. Maybe, you know, there. I, I knew there was... 13, 14 year olds that killed their parents, burned the houses down. I knew those were those kind of kids that, but then again, I look back now, I also knew I was a judgmental parent who, when I saw a kid or a TV show like that, I was like, well, who the heck raises a kid like that? I was one of those people. Right. I was one of those people when they had kids throwing meltdowns in the grocery store. I was like, get your kid under control. And yet I was in that profession, but I was in my profession, I was extremely empathetic to other people. So I don't know how I was both. And yet I was, I was extremely good in my profession. My clients always called me over calling DCF. They always called me first. But yet when I would go into the stores or look at people, I'd be like, there's got to be a way to get this kid under control. I don't understand what you're doing. And now there's, I have such a whole different perspective. Six years later. Isn't that the truth? Rad really changes a lot, <laughs> including perspective. <laughs> I have perspectives on a lot right. of things. So it's really interesting how I, it, it doesn't just change my perspectives on children and families and where the needs are, but, on almost every thing that I look at. And so in that moment, what is your mind thinking? What is going through your head? Yeah. Um, so there, in that particular moment, I knew I was in trouble. Mm. And of course, you know, my husband is a, he's a senior government employee um, and he's, he's working and he's got a great job. And he was, he was highly involved with the kids from day one. Um, so we didn't struggle with this. Thankfully, we didn't struggle with what so many people have to struggle with, where one sees something, another doesn't. I mean, we did to a point where he, I saw 90% of it and because I was there all the time, but I didn't struggle with a disbelief on that piece. Right. Um, Meaning that your partner and you were allies and... Yeah. I mean, part of that being that she wasn't discretionary at school. I mean, she was at the point where they had to call the police on her at school. She, uh, and we had, and I, I'm going to, you know, I did a, another interview and this was something I really feel is important because I need schools to know this. What saved us and our family from being absolutely decimated and destroyed over and over and over again was the fact that our school was our ally and they believed us. So many families are destroyed by RAD 
because RAD can triangulate with the schools. And appreciation that we have for our elementary school, I, we're just now, Layla's moving into a, a new school. Um, and of course, we're in the middle of a whole different world right now. Um, but with our older uh, child, you know, when she would go in and say, I got a dog bite, by the way, our, our previous Bernice Mountain dog that was my companion, work companion for 10 years, was a certified therapy dog to go to pediatrics with me. So it wasn't. Right. He wasn't by running away from her most of the time. He was, she was the only child he was ever scared of. Aww. So, you know, or I have this rashes everywhere that mom won't look at. She refuses to help me with or those sorts of things. The school always called us first. And you bring up a good point. Sorry to interrupt you, but you bring up a good point, And I just want listeners to hear it is that most of these kiddos with Brad once they leave the house, the house is the trigger. And so that's where most stuff happens. And once they leave the house, they can usually fake it and kind of function out in the world without drawing attention to themselves. And so most people don't see the behaviors and the scary stuff that happens at home. And so I love the point that you're raising because then what happens is parents are judged and parents are judged on this must be a parenting issue. Going back to what you were saying earlier, we've all been guilty of it and thinking, what are you doing? You know, you should be getting better control of that child or there must be something that's happening at home. Uh, and that's not the case with RAD. So I'm really glad that you brought it up. And you're very lucky that your daughter was so overt out in public and at school. So you didn't have to face that. Well, she wasn't, she wasn't. The problem with school is that originally in the elementary school, they were trying to get her to both do some work and manage her behaviors. She will not do schoolwork. She blatantly refuses to do schoolwork. So as soon as she would try to, as soon as they were trying to get her to do schoolwork, she would literally hold a classroom hostage and they would have to evacuate the classroom and it would be, or she would get violent and seriously injure other students, or she sent two teachers to the emergency room at different times, different years. So it'd be, and it was, I mean, we were all, the teachers, us, the behavioral room, we were all at a loss trying to get the district to get her out into a therapeutic school to protect everybody. When that finally happened, and then they put her in a therapeutic school, they stopped making her do schoolwork. So now she didn't have to do schoolwork at home or at school. So then the behaviors no longer existed. And then we became more of the typical rad parent that people look at as once she got involved with the community-based services, uh, where we, we had to remove her from private therapy, our private therapist, into community-based services in order to get you know, what we were supposed to get, which was wraparound services, summer services for her for home. That's when things started to really fail because all of those people that we had chosen and I knew from other resources we weren't able to use anymore. We then had to rely on the, the system for our services. And I would say at that point from that started March of 2018 and by 
and this is not to diss any any RTC or anything because safety is first. But from by March of 2018 to September of 2018, she was in an RTC. From there, the, the, the impatience, the impatient stays went crazy, and she would have had to go anyways from the beginning. Let's backtrack a little bit because we covered a lot of things here, and I just want to make sure the listeners get all of it. That time you were talking about with the bathing suit issue or lack of bathing suit when Ella was five, was that the first time or the first kind of sign for you that this was rad or something? That was the first sign that there was something more that we didn't know. So not rad. They were taken for neglect. Um, so that was what we were told was that she just, the, the bio mom or my husband's niece just couldn't take care of them. So they were taken for neglect. We were not told of any abuse or anything else. That was the first thing that we knew darn well. There was something more. I mean, and that's the day that they came to live with us. There was always a little, like, I'm watching, as I was watching, I was always watching. And as I'm watching, just the things I was watching, I could see something wasn't adding up. And isn't that exactly it? Where something isn't right, mm-hmm. but you don't quite know what it is. Right. But you just know it's not right. <laughs> Her sister came up diagnosed with nothing. She came up diagnosed with nothing, but she came up on medications with no diagnosis that we didn't know she had. So I found that interesting anyways. But initially, her sister was primarily more difficult. So I think that's also one of the reasons why the there was a little bit you know, the, the bathing suit issue was unnerving, but otherwise her behaviors at home were a little bit more mild than her sister's were as far as overtly violent, except for hers at school. At school, she was more violent. And I was going to ask you to talk a bit, yeah, more about that. You said she sent two teachers to the hospital. Are you comfortable talking about those situations? Yeah, no, her teachers and I actually kind of, you know, you, you, they have a good sense of humor. We're very good friends. So her first teacher that she sent was in kindergarten. I've known this teacher almost 20 years now. She assisted with our oldest daughter before she was a teacher. She she did some one-on-one, which was great. She's an adoptive mom, foster parent, who actually now will no longer foster in our state because she's concerned about, she's got two children at home now. Yeah, something happens. And it's not a stand for us. It's a what happens if something goes wrong in my own home? Right. So she, I think Ella was was trying to go do something to, and just walked up to her and said, you know, she wanted to give her a hug. And she bent in to give her a hug and then all of a sudden bit right onto her face and wouldn't let go. And it had, she had like such deep marks and um, I can't remember if there was blood now or not, but. So we had, I, obviously, I, she got suspended. Um, and I don't remember if it was more than one or two days at that point. It's, she had so. And that's kindergarten? That was kindergarten. Yeah, she, I mean, she stabbed kids. She did a number of things in kindergarten. First grade, actually in kindergarten, there was a different principal there. This, and the principal told me that she felt like she needed just a lot of one-on-one time with me. So I should really consider homeschooling her. Interesting. And I know there's a lot of people that homeschool and do well. I'm not a homeschool parent. Right. And I have always said I'm not a homeschool parent to my neurotypical children. I certainly, with a child who's up all night long running around the house trying to find a cat, 
that we're hiding. I'm not going to homeschool and I need those hours during the day. And I don't think any rad parent should ever feel guilty for saying that they need that time during the day to themselves. But on the days that she had been suspended, they had sent the the principal had sent some worksheets home. And I tried one time to do a, a worksheet with her and she stabbed me with her pencil. And I said, that will be the last time that my house is a school for this child. I sat in her office, the principal's office, a number of times with her. And I said, you have an entire building here that's locked. You can lock down within a courtyard that's inside. Like the whole building is a U-shape. And you have, I don't know, a hundred people in this building that can chase her. And you still have to call the police to get her. I'm one person and I'm doing it when with my husband at home and other children. I can't do this by myself with nobody else there, which is the same thing I've said to hospitals and RTCs and, and everything else. They can't manage her. How can I do it by myself? I can't. And I'm not a teacher. It's easy to just push that child back to the family rather than having to deal with it at those. And when you say RTC, that's a residential treatment center. Residential treatment center. Yeah, I actually didn't even know what RTC meant when my daughter was in one until I heard it from the advocates. I'm like, right? what, what did you say? Why do I need to find an RTC? What is this? Well, that's the um, thing. We're always finding things out late. You know, you learn about RAD years in and it helps kind of figure out what's been going on in your life. Yeah. All those times where you knew something was different and off. Ella's no longer with you. What started happening? What were the behaviors? And I know you've mentioned some, but when did it really hit ahead? And then how did that whole process of, you know, you mentioned that Ella was in a residential treatment center in RTC, and then we're going to talk about the relinquishment, but talk a bit more about what those behaviors were. So the, the squeezing of Thomas's paw was sort of, a, I hate saying that this way, but when you're talking in a world of rad, that was sort of a minor thing. Scary, shocking, but minor in the scheme of things. Uh, we had worked with a private uh, adoption, foster adoption therapist at a point. So we, she had given us some things to kind of watch for because just talking about a few of these little things that were going on in the home already, she was like, so she was already thinking those were big things. She did. She did. So that already had us like, okay, she talked about making sure there was always a pillow between Joe and her, you know, between Joe and Ella so that they could do some bonding, but safely. And she, and she told me right off the bat, she said, you make sure your son and your husband are never alone with her ever. She said, there's, you're setting them up for false allegations. And I'm like, well, that's going to be fun. but. Never bathing, never in the bedroom, never anything. And then that was another key. That was huge because along with the school, her advice on that absolutely protected. I mean, it was a long few years, but, and we didn't have anybody else. It was me and it was him. So that was the way it worked, but it saved us that, that bit of advice. So it really just kept progressing from that little bit of, you know, she was so persistent when we started trying to put him, but, you know, keep Thomas away from her. We had a, a basement family room that was fully finished and we would put him down there when she was up or at night. Is Thomas the cat? Thomas this cat. And she would 
even with the lock on the basement, the slide lock, she would get up and slide something over there to try to unlock that door to get to him. So Joe changed to a key lock so she couldn't get in there. And then they were, she was, she got sent home one day or she was home. I don't remember which at this point, but I thought Thomas was outside and apparently he was hiding in the back of a closet in the family room. So I, she was very quiet in the family room and that's never a good thing for anyone. So I went to check on her and she was literally on, this was, this was it. This was like, not it for it, but this was when I knew we were so far beyond PTSD. She was on top of him, strangling him all four over the top of him. And he was limp. Her face was fire red. Her eyes were just, and her arms were bleeding. And I, I just was like yelling her name and she just looked at me and smiled. So she was with it. She wasn't gone. And I told her to stop and she smiled and just went back to what she was doing. And I, I pushed her off of him and I got, I got him to back. So he ran. And I, then I looked at her and her arms were just covered in scratches and blood. She had petechial hemorrhaging, which mm -hmm. is the red spot, broken blood vessels everywhere. And I asked her, I said, what did you do? Calm as can be. I have no idea how, but I said, what did you do? And she, she said, what? And I said, your face, your face, it's all like you have spots all over your face. Like when you blow up a balloon and it, you know, and she said, I held my breath so that I didn't scream so that you couldn't hear me when he was scratching me. And to that, I literally had nothing. There's no, there's no words for that kind of stuff. And I'm looking at a six-year-old who's doing this so desperately persistent after this cat, but at the same time, still seeing things with her sister and her sister would just come out crying and not say anything to me, it refuses to tell me what's happening. I mean, we had stopped letting them play alone, but this was even like, a, you know, in the sandbox or somewhere where you could see the two of them. And then there was a day, so we've, we, the cat was like, we had alarms everywhere now. Alarms. We had a camera in the, and she wanted a camera in her bedroom. She said that made her feel safe. Thank God she asked for one. It was like a baby monitor style. It didn't record. Now I wish I had all cameras that recorded in the house, but we didn't back then. I didn't know any of the underground groups. I didn't know any of that stuff. Support groups for parents. If I knew the support groups, I would have had a lot more security that would have protected us in the end. Because as a parent of a rad child and with such drastic, severe, scary behaviors, you need to six. do things at six, right? At six and kindergarten, you have to do things and parent and protect yourself. It's not, it's just not parenting anymore. There's a whole, it's a whole other world. This is survival. Yeah. And if you look at the, the pyramid of needs, we were never even getting to safety. And safety is what level? That's all we were stuck on with safety and security. So you can't even get to safety is the basic, the bottom. Level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're just trying to get to safety that we couldn't even get to anything else to meet anybody else's needs. So then you're looking at, and I, you know, this is going off a little bit, but then you're looking at our son who is a neurotypical child or, and 
none of his needs are getting met and he's fading off into no man's land becoming depressed and withdrawn and 10 and 11 years old fading away we're losing those years and he doesn't even want to speak to anyone and i've literally had some of these conversations with people since we released our article very few because i've been at home so much but it's i've had some messenger conversations and said this is why i used to ask people not to hug my children because attachment needs to happen not between a therapist and a child not between the church people and a child but when a foster child or an adoptive child or foster to adopt whatever comes into a family they're so confused and so scared of love and caregivers because family is a dangerous, dangerous thing, that the work needs to happen between the caregiver, the primary caregivers, and the child. And if every time I go to church, you people are all offering them lollipops and candy and cookies and hugs and kisses, you're not helping me. You could support me and Joe. Come up right. and shake our hands and hug us. And you know, if you want to pat them on the back and say hi, whatever, that's fine. But that's what we need is a united group around us as a family, not that one child, because you feel sorry for them for what happened. What happened to them is horrific. It really is, but the hugs and the candy aren't gonna make up for it. Thanks for listening, everyone. That was part one of my conversation with Cheryl Russo. I hope you'll be back for part two during the next episode. If you like the show, please subscribe and help spread the word by clicking share and like. If you're a parent who needs more support, whether it's for you or your family, please check out my website at radtalkwithtracy.com and visit radadvocates.org.